Well, good morning, church. How are we doing? Good to see you. My name's Phil Shields. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you. If you are new to Wheaton Bible Church and you're checking this place out, welcome. Uh, we would love to get to know you. There's a desk out in the atrium, and you can go out there, ask any question you want, and I'm sure they will have an answer for you, okay? Uh, but we'd love the opportunity to get to know you. Welcome those of you watching online. I don't know about you, but after Eric read that, my thought was, man, I feel encouraged. <laughs> so, we are going to dive in to the longest section of Scripture in the Matthew series that we're going to deal with in one morning because Hannibal didn't want to. <laughs> so, we're going to do it here together, okay? So... Um, make sure you have your Bible open to Matthew chapter 23 as we dig in. I don't know about you, but I'm wondering, have you ever heard of the better than average effect? Have you ever heard of that? Well, if you haven't, it's okay, but it's a part of you. Um, it's something that social psychologists talk about. And what the better than average effect is, is this. It's the tendency for people to perceive their abilities, their attributes, and personality traits as superior compared with their average peer. So what does that mean? Well, it means that you and I think we are better than the person we're sitting next to today. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck, buddy. Uh, we can talk about marriage and all that later. But here's the deal. We actually have in our DNA that we have the better than average effect. Meaning that we think that when we compare ourselves to most people in the room, we think that we're better than them. We actually come in, we think that we're better parents or that we're better at relationships, that uh, some of you actually think you are a better driver than the other person next to you. You're better at your work. You're better at all of these things. You have a better personality compared to those sitting next to you and those in the room. And when you think about this, what ends up being really funny is that you are thinking that you are better than the person next to you, but the person next to you is actually thinking the same thing about you. So we have this thing in our DNA that we think about ourselves and we play up ourselves, and it's been like that since Genesis 3. It's been that, like that since the fall of Adam and Eve. We come into relationships and we think about how we are better than the other person. So Jesus goes in chapter 23, he starts to teach. And what we have to remember is that this is uh, found the week before his crucifixion. In fact, it's actually uh, a warning that takes place on Tuesday of that week. And when you look at this, you see that it's broken up in certain ways. There's audiences. In uh, verses 1 through 12, we see that Jesus is talking to the crowd and to his 12 disciples. 
And then he shifts gear in verse 13, and in the rest of the chapter, he's talking to the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, and, and he's speaking very bluntly to them. And I don't know about you, but whenever I was listening to Eric read this, and, and as I was going through it this week, I was sitting there going, man, Jesus is a little ticked off. Like, this is not the normal Jesus that I like to picture. You know, it's not the, the Jesus that comes in and, and is all loving and caring and he's concerned about the person sitting there. At least that's not what it seems. He comes in and what scholars say is that this text is the harshest text in all of Scripture. But here's the deal. We can't read this text and go, man, Jesus just lost his temper. Jesus is angry but he didn't just lose his temper. What's happening here is Jesus has a righteous anger and he's looking at what's happening and we end up seeing that there is a savior that is in this scene and he is experiencing sorrow that his people and his leaders were blinded by their sin. That they, they had these blinders on and they didn't see him as the Messiah. In fact, it's a harsh text, but it's a mourning text. Now, as we go through this, I believe that there is a principle that kind of weaves its way through all 39 verses. And it's something that we have to walk out of here because honestly, when we hear uh, about warnings and what Jesus is doing, we tend to think that warnings uh, sometimes, like, they're not good for us. Like, we want to ignore them. And, you know, like, we look at the speed limit and we go, well, that's just a warning. And so we go a little faster, right? But what we have to see is that the warning of Jesus reminds us that we desperately need his grace. The warning of Jesus reminds us that we desperately need his grace because we are people that live with the better than average effect. We think that we can be our own savior. So we're going to look at this through three sections. We're going to first look at Jesus' warning, and then we're going to look at Jesus' woes, and then the last thing is we're going to look at Jesus' call to us. So let's start with Jesus' warning, and you find that in the first 12 verses. And so he's talking to this crowd and the 12 disciples, and what we find in these first 12 verses is we can get this read on what Jesus' heart is like. We can, we can see that uh, he is hurting because these people do not understand the truth of God. They don't understand who is standing in front of them. And so he is warning the people about the scribes and the Pharisees, these men that are supposed to be teaching the truth, but they are not. They are blind themselves. But look at what happens. Look at verse 2. It says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Now that might not seem like a big deal to you, but when Jesus says that, you have to go back to the Old Testament. And so if we go all the way back to the Old Testament, to Deuteronomy 17, we see what takes place. Moses uh, has been leading his people, Israel, and what ends up happening is in the synagogues, they would set up this seat 
that would be Moses' seat. And it was a place that would remind them. It was kind of like a, uh, a place that whenever you would see that seat, it was that the, the teaching authority of Moses' successors was present. And they were the interpreters of the Torah. And so they would sit in the seat and they would interpret the law to the people. And so what would end up happening is that these scribes and Pharisees would sit there and the suggestion, suggestion that Jesus is saying is that they seat themselves on Moses' seat rather than God placing them there. See, these men think that they have been working their entire life and they've been doing all these good works. And because they've been doing these good works, they have placed themselves in the seat of authority. Now, think about this for a second. If you have placed yourself in the seat of authority, what you are doing is you are putting yourself in an influential and holy position. See, the way you live that out ends up being this selfish seat. These men get there and they sit down and rather than being grateful that they are religious leaders for God's chosen people, they say, I have placed myself there and I am gonna do whatever it takes to stay in that position. It's a place and a seat of pride instead of a seat full of grace. So Jesus addresses these leaders' lives and how they are holding their position over other people. And he starts talking about this in verses three through four. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So he gives this warning. Do what they teach, but not how they live. Now, this might seem strange because if you have been going through the Gospel of Matthew with us, one of the things that you're going to find throughout the Gospel of Matthew and all the other Gospels is that Jesus takes time to really criticize the teaching of the religious leaders. So now, in Matthew 23... The week before the crucifixion, he ends up saying, you know, do what they say. How can he say that when he's been criticizing them? Well, this is where when you start looking at it, you got to go, well, what's happening here? And commentator R.T. France actually says that Jesus is actually speaking with some sarcasm, some tongue-in-cheek. He's basically saying it this, this way. You can do what they say, but... See, he, he's saying that the warning is that they don't even follow what they say. They talk a good talk, but they walk an awful, awful walk. So when you think about this, I, I think about um, I'm a parent. And if I tell my kids to do something, but I don't do it myself, what kind of example am I leading? Jesus is saying the same thing about the Pharisees. They say the right things, but they just don't even live it out. 
So when we start looking at this, they end up, they start teaching and they create these heavy burdens. They're putting like these, uh, this uh, aspect of legalism on the people. Well, here's all the laws and all the, the rules that you have to follow. And so what they end up doing is they make it harder on others rather than themselves. Now, here's what we have to understand When obedience is based on legalism, Christianity becomes oppressive. See, when your obedience is based on because you think there is a rule set up, rather than that is God's heart and that's God's desire, you end up starting to follow an oppressive religious system. And so what's happening is the the religious leaders are setting up this oppressive system for the people. And so they end up going, you got to do this. And they don't even lift a finger to help the people. See, the religious leaders were set up for God's chosen people to be men who help the community, who help people understand who God is. And Jesus is saying, they don't do any of that. They're in direct contrast to who Jesus was. We've already studied this chapter, but if you were to go back to Matthew 11, this is what you would hear Jesus say. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus is saying, you're weary, you're burdened. Come to me. I know you can't do it all. And I am here to help. I will lift my arms to help you in your time of need. And what the religious leaders are doing is they're saying, this is the way it needs to be done. Go do it. And they're not doing it. They're not helping So they might be saying some wise things, but they actually look foolish. Now, why are they doing this? Well, Jesus ends up saying in verses 5 through 7, he ends up revealing really what's behind their heart. What is the desire of their heart to lead in this way? So he ends up saying, everything they do is done for people to see. And this is this is. Uh, what is crazy. They make their phylacteries. Now, when was the last time you thought the word phylacteries would make it into a service, right? Like you probably don't ever use that word, but they make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. So what's the first thing that they're doing? The the religious leaders love to be seen by others. Look at me. Look at what I do. Look at how great and holy I am. And what they do is they see that their deeds are being done for God and they are trying to work out their salvation for God rather than seeing that God has sent grace to the earth. Rather than seeing that grace is standing among them. And so how do they do it? How do they want to be seen by others? Well, in their system, they set up these things called phylacteries. And phylacteries were these uh, small leather boxes. 
and they would take these uh, little pieces of uh, like paper and they would put them in that would contain different verses from the Torah and they would put them in the, that box. And so what was happening is they were applying verses like Exodus 13 and Deuteronomy 6. That the word of the Lord would be their focus. And so they would have these boxes and they would attach them sometimes to their head, sometimes to their arm, and they would walk around with them. So these phylacteries started out really small. Just to remind. And that what ended up happening was the religious leaders would start getting these boxes made and one would be a little bigger than the next one. And so all of a sudden they have these big leather boxes and that's so important because if they're bigger boxes, it means that there's more scripture that's pouring into them. And so they gotta be the most holy people. It goes even further. The, the rabbis, uh, they would wear this uh, piece of cloth around their shoulders and it would go down and at the end of the, the shawl-like uh, cloth would be these tassels. And the tassels were reminders. Reminders to follow and obey the word of God, obey the law that was given to Moses. And so they would walk around with it and they would see those tassels. In fact, it's thought that Jesus even wore one of those that he had the tassels on there. But this is what the religious leaders would do. They would get a new shawl made and they would say, add an inch onto the tassels. Make them a little longer. And so there was like a competition between the religious leaders. Who had the longer tassels? Because whoever had the longer tassels had to be observing the law of God more than those that had the shorter tassels. See, the thinking goes like this. Those of you that walked in with the large, massive study Bible today, well, you're the most holy. I'm sorry to crush your spirit, but that's not true. See, it, it's this thinking of, I'm going to have an appearance that makes me look holy to others. And so because of that, they wanted all of the, the attention on them. It also says, Jesus says, they love the place of honor, so they, they love the rich. And so they would go to these banquets and they would sit at the seats at the head table in the places of honor. They would go to the synagogues and the synagogues would be set up with these seats. And it was, it was thought, let's set it up so that the, the people that needed to hear the word of God, that, that weren't taught the law, that wasn't part of, of how they grew up. So they would set up these seats so those people could come and they could hear the word of God uh, spoken. But what took place was the religious leaders would come in and they would fill in those seats and those that needed to hear the word, those that didn't study the word, those that didn't even have a copy in front of them would be pushed further and further back to the point that they couldn't hear. And so the people, you start looking at this going, why is Jesus pointing this out? It's because when the pride of their heart drives how they want to be seen and lead, people are going to start to take notice. And those people are going to start to go, well, that must be the way that I'm supposed to live. 
I'm supposed to do that. Those are my examples, so I guess I'm supposed to be like that. What ends up happening is the, the system that was set up became completely broken. Jesus is saying, you are foolish to follow them. And he then ends this, this section of these 12 verses by telling them not to call any man rabbi, not to call any man father or instructor. Now, I want to be clear, that does not mean, those of you that are, are kids in here, it doesn't mean that you can't call your dad, dad. What Jesus is saying is, is that you can't set up any man uh, to, to be like this incredible spiritual leader in your life, and he takes the place of Jesus. He's saying that religious leaders shouldn't seek titles. That rabbi, father, instructor isn't important. What's important is that you understand that Jesus is the, the Savior King. He is the Messiah that has come. And why is this? Well, it's because what Jesus did is he taught his 12 disciples. He knew that the crucifixion was coming. So what did he do? He taught his disciples how to teach. He's going to send them out. And he's warning them. Do not teach so that you get a title or so that you seek places of honor. You teach so that people understand what the gospel is and who the Messiah is. Jesus is, is saying that you are to be humble. You're to avoid sinful pride. You're, you're to be a, a people that, that come and confesses sin and is, is honestly declaring your weakness because when we declare our weakness and we say, God, we need you, that's where you will be exalted. See, the warning of Jesus reminds us that we desperately need his grace. Jesus is saying, you need the grace. You need this grace. So Jesus gives a warning, and then he goes on in the text to these woes. Now, I was asked this in the, in the first service, but we are not going to touch on everything in this chapter. It's a lot of verses. And so we're not going to go through every single woe. But what we have to understand is that Jesus now shifts gears starting in verse 13. And he is speaking directly to the scribes and the Pharisees. And all of a sudden, this, this harsh, these harsh statements come out. One of my favorite books that I have read several times is the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. Maybe you love that book. Or maybe you're one of the people that watched the movie. I got to tell you, that's lame. You got to read the book, okay? Now, if you haven't read it, I'm not going to spoil it the way that Hannibal would up here. But I want to tell you about one of the most magnificent scenes ever written in any literature. I think C.S. Lewis was brilliant when he wrote this. And if you don't know the story, the story is of these kids in London and they, they walk into this massive wardrobe into a new land, Narnia. So they walk in and these, the four children walk in and they meet one of the coolest couples ever found in literature, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. 
So Mr. and Mrs. Beaver have the kids there and they're talking to them and, and they're telling them that Aslan, who they are going to go meet, Aslan is a lion. Now think about this. You're coming from London and a beaver is talking to you. Not only that, they're going to say, we're going to take you to go meet a lion. And that has to be startling. And in fact, Susan ends up saying to, to Mrs. Beaver, says, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver then shares, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake, if there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. That scene sticks with me. Because whenever we look at this, we have to see that Aslan is the Christ figure. He is, he is Jesus in the story. And that scene reveals some of what happens in these verses. Jesus is king and he isn't safe. But Jesus is king and he is good. And so he comes, this good king, and he comes and reveals through two words throughout this text how he brings judgment as king and how he also brings grace as king. And he uses the words woe and hypocrite over and over and over again. Woe is a word that's another warning, and this time the warning, the woe, comes to the religious leaders. It's a, it's a warning and a rebuke that condemns that what they are doing is actually allowing evil to be present in their teaching. See, friends, this isn't people that are just teaching something wrong or, or just, you know, nonchalantly being different. What they are doing is allowing evil to be present among the way that they teach to the people. And Jesus mourns over it by using the word woe. See, he's revealing grief and sorrow of the consequences that is coming to Israel because of these leaders. And then there's this word hypocrite, and hypocrite is a little different in the Gospels. The religious uh, leaders at the time, you know, hypocrite in Greek is used as putting on a mask for a play. But what is happening here is like there are times that the religious leaders might be putting on a mask but, um, and they at times were guilty of deliberate deceit. But what we find if you read through all of Matthew and the other three gospels is that you will find that the religious leaders seem to deceive themselves first and as they deceive themselves they pass on that deception to the people. Like sometimes they don't even mean to do it, but they're doing it. So in verse 13, what the text could say is, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, sincere hypocrites. Because these scribes and Pharisees were doing something that God did not intend to be done. And so Jesus comes and he is brutally honest. Now, Here's what I want us to understand. 
that even though Jesus is being brutally honest with these men, he is also being brutally honest to you and me this morning. You cannot sit here and go, well, that's for the scribes and Pharisees. I'm not a scribe and Pharisee. I'm an accountant. (laughs) No, no, no. This is for you and for me as followers of Jesus Christ. And And so when we look at this, what we have to understand is that the scribes, they were these teachers of the law, and they were interpreting, uh, interpretive experts about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And then the Pharisees were these theological experts about who God is. And so these two separate groups came together, and the Jews heavily depended on them to explain the Torah and who God is and how we should relate to God. How God and the law operate in everyday life. But then in verse 13, Jesus says that these two groups, that they don't enter the kingdom of heaven themselves and they don't even allow others to enter it. I mean, they're the roadblock. And what we'll see is that the worst way that these leaders are going to do it is they are going to condemn They are going to judge and they will murder Jesus in just days. The Messiah. The King. See, they believe that that God sent his covenant uh, and his law to them so that they could work out their salvation themselves rather than understanding that God was sending a Messiah to this earth and the Messiah, full of grace and mercy, was standing right in front of them. They miss it. Jesus says, woe to you, you hypocrites. You should know who I am. And then in verse 15, Jesus cries out again with another woe. See, what was happening in the first century, uh, the Jews were sending out missionaries. The Pharisees are sending out their people this missionary activity that's taking place. And they're going out and they're trying to promote their false religion and get people to start practicing their way of life. But what they're doing is they're teaching a false religion. And so the people that convert to them and to their way of life convert to a life that is doomed. Because what they taught left no room for Jesus. So let me ask you real quick. When you think of your life, how much room are you leaving for Jesus? Are you trying to operate in a way of of a legalistic order that, well, I am good and I, I love Jesus and man, I sing louder than the person next to me in church, so I love God a lot more. But you're moving in a way of a false religion. I was reading about when the uh, bubonic plague came to London and the English doctors told the people that they needed fresh air. So they needed to leave the city and get to the countryside. And if they could get to the countryside, they would start to feel better. What ended up happening is the people went to the countryside and slowly, one by one, they infected the next person And that person infected another. See, what the Pharisees are doing is exactly what happened in England. They have an infectious 
false religion. And it's spreading out. And it's condemning those they encounter. Jesus goes on then in verses 16 through 24. He comes with another woe. And in those, he's rebuking them for majoring on the minor things. Remember, Jesus isn't safe. He is not going to just overlook things and go, oh, that's just simply not right. But it's okay. I just love them. He's saying, you are majoring on the minor things. He's telling them that their whole system of oaths, of buildings, of tithing, and legalism is messed up. And he's declaring that God loves most justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But instead, they're focused on gold and the ornate, ornateness of their buildings. It's like this. It's like if we came in here and instead of focusing on is the truth of God preached, is the truth of God getting in my life, we're more worried about the color of the carpet. Like we're focusing on the minor things. And what, what Jesus is saying is you aren't getting it right. It's not that tithing is wrong. It's not like focusing on that is wrong, but it's saying that if you're focusing on, the things you're focusing on are only to build yourself up rather than to be a conviction about what it means to live the way of God. And so he rebukes them. He goes on then in verses 25 through 28, and he gives this warning about outward appearance, appearances. In fact, in this text, this is the area where all of us go, I totally get what Jesus is saying. Because he uses this image of a, a dish in a, in a cup, and he ends up saying, you have to clean the inside, and then the outside will be taken care of. And so we totally get that. But he also then talks about these whitewashed tombs, and he says, you, you paint the tombs and you make them uh, ornate and beautiful, not realizing that you're doing something and you're beautifying something that has dead bones and rottenness underneath. What would happen is for the Jews, if they would have walked across a tomb, that would have declared them unclean. And so the thought was, at least mark the tombs so you don't walk across them. But what are they doing? They're going, we are going to make them beautiful. And so they decorate them and they do this. And Jesus is going, why are you doing that? You're decorating dead bones, the rot. See, he's saying, are you taking time for your inner soul more than you take time for your outward appearance? So let me just say this to you. You all look amazing today. Good looking, okay? But do you take enough time for your soul? Are you putting as much attention into your soul that you put into looking as good as you look today? See, I have a feeling that we have to heed the warning. We take a lot of time for how we look on the outside, but Jesus is saying, focus on the inside. He then goes on, verses 29 through 36, and he gives this warning to the leaders about unbelief. He ends up giving this reference to the first martyr of the Bible, Abel, and goes to the last martyr of the Hebrew canon, Zechariah, and he says, throughout this span, you have had unbelief taking place. 
And he says the biggest thing in these verses is that those who are supposed to have great belief and pass it on to others has a weak faith. I mean, he's basically saying, Israel, you got this wrong. I love you, but you got this wrong. So here's the deal. Jesus has gone through all of these rebukes, but I want to ask, do you remember who he's talking to here? He's talking to the religious. I mean, the uber-religious. He's talking and passing judgment on those who attend church regularly, on those who worshiped weekly. He's passing judgment on those that went out as missionaries, who made religious commitments, who gave money, who have worked to observe God's law each hour of the day, and those that built beautiful structures for the God of Israel. Those are the people that you would think that would be stepping into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not. And you're blocking the way for others. Why is that? Why is Jesus saying this? And he's saying it's because they're hypocrites. They don't see Jesus as the servant leader, as the son of God, as the unsafe king of Jesus. As the one who has come as the Messiah, they have rejected him. And he's giving them one more opportunity to surrender to grace. His words aren't safe but his words offer grace for us to see that his warnings are good. So Jesus warns, he brings these woes, and the last thing he does is he brings a call. You see this in verses 37 through 39. It says there, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those that sent, those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Man, the closing is a closing of deep sorrow. There's deep compassion here at the events that have surrounded his relationship with the religious leaders. In fact, this is the last time he's going to deal with them in a way of like trying to convict them, trying to get them to understand the truth. But he's clear that Israel has stoned and killed the prophets and in just a matter of days, they would kill him. Jesus says, I've longed to gather your children. The literal, literal explanation of that is basically this, I wanted you, but you didn't want me. I was in Florida this past week with my daughter and we were, uh, uh, we spent a little time at a pool and as we were in a pool, my wife and I looked over and there was this uh, duck, this mother duck that had all of her ducklings behind her and they're waddling past and they're walking and, and the mother duck's walking and kind of looking back and looking at where she's going. She's making sure that everybody's in line you know, and if one duck get, duckling gets out of line, she's making sure they get back in line. And, and what, we, what you have to understand is those ducklings didn't do anything to gain the love and the grace and the mercy from their mother. But she still is giving the time to them. 
saying, walk in this way, know who, know who I am, follow me. Jesus changes the way that he talks about himself. This is one of the times that, uh, one and only times that he talks about himself as a mother. He says, I wish I could gather you and put you under the protection of my wings. But you didn't want me. He's saying, you don't have to do anything. You don't work for that. I just want to give it to you. See, we have to understand that the warning of Jesus reminds us that we desperately need his grace. And it's recognizing that he is the Messiah. And we follow him. See, that need for grace, one of the beautiful places to see it is at the table. Jesus gathers his 12 disciples and as he meets with them, he's preparing for them to uh, understand that he's going to the cross. He's going to be gone at some point. And so he creates this table where he wants to gather those that are saying, he is king of my life. So that we would have a remembrance of who he is and what he has done. See, Matthew 23 urges those that haven't surrendered to Jesus to do so. But Matthew 23 also urges those that have given their life to Jesus to proclaim that he is Lord of their life through their faith, obedience, and actions. This is a table to remember that the life and death of Jesus was costly. But it was a life of grace that was given for you and me. Now, if you are just checking Jesus out right now and you're like, I, I just am looking at this. I don't know what this is about. It's okay. I want to encourage you not to take part in this. This is, this is a table for those that have surrendered their life to Jesus. And so I want to encourage you, just observe, just look. It's okay. And for those of you that are followers of Jesus that come to this table to remember I want to encourage you to pause for a minute to assess yourself. What is Matthew 23 convicting you about? See, I don't think the Pharisees and scribes took time to assess themselves. But Jesus says, come to the table and assess. Spend time with me. So I want to give you a moment you might need to confess sin. You might need to just praise God for the grace that he's poured out. But I want to give you time to assess right now and then we'll gather together. Do that.
you take your cup, you're going to want to open the small side of it. Get the bread out. Matthew 26, 26, the Jesus, the king who isn't safe but is so, so good, ends up saying this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. continued with his 12 and he had a cup the scripture says then he took a cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to them saying drink from it all of you this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins And so, Father, we praise you for the remembrance of coming to this table to remember what you have done for us. Your body was broken, your blood was shed, that you went to a cross to forgive us for our sins. But you didn't stay there. There's an empty tomb that declares your glory, that you are king over everything. And may we declare that you are king in our lives. That sometimes the warnings that you give us aren't safe, but they are good and they are good for us. And so may we heed those. And may we see the warnings that you put in our path as warnings that lead us and remind us of the grace that we so desperately need. So I pray for my, my family here. I pray that we would be people that squelch pride, that we ask pride to leave our lives, that we would be humble servants of you and that we would take your gospel out of this place into a world that is so desperately in need of it. May justice and mercy and faithfulness be a part of our lives. Transform us and lead us. And we ask this in your name. Amen.